0: Again, I'm Scott Warner, I'm president and program chair of the Culinary Historians of Chicago. And again, welcome to tonight's meeting. We have a a fascinating speaker, uh, Adam Sentimore. I met Adam um, last spring at the International Association of Culinary Professionals annual conference in Pittsburgh. And uh, that's, I go to these conferences and that's where I kind of shop for speakers. Incredible people go to these conferences. But anyway, I was talking to Adam, and he sounded so fascinating. And I asked him for his card so I could contact him about speaking for the Culinary Historians of Chicago. And Adam knows a lot about cheese and history, and he teaches wine and cheese classes. And he will he will tell you about his, his background. And he's highly educated in uh, in normal things besides cheese and wine but uh anyway um so when we were talking about what he would talk about i like to ask speakers what is it that you would like to talk about for our group and adam said human stance and i said what i said what oh what what oh what 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 is that And he explained to me what human stance was because who's going to listen to that, but no, I anyway it's it's wonderful it's so interesting, it has to do with cheese and the Alps and human culture and. uh, Cows and everything, so all I can say is um, Adam's going to take us to Switzerland right away so fasten your seatbelts and when you depart. Uh, watch out where you step because it's going to be a lot of cows around and, you, you know, avoid the cow pies. So, Adam, would you tell us about yourself and tell us all about human stance? Thank you.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much, Scott and Kathy. And good evening, everybody. Uh, thank you for choosing to spend a little time with me. Uh, I'm really excited to talk about this stuff. I'm super nerdy when it comes to, like, cows and mountains and cheese and wine and stuff. So any opportunity I get... To be able to numb somebody else with all of my nerdiness instead of my wife, she really, really appreciates it. Um, this is the presentation that I'll go through. So the name of my presentation I call moving day. Uh, and it's on the topic of transhumans and in particular the impact it has on dairy cultures, uh, specifically alpine dairy cultures, because again, I'm kind of a kind of a mountain nerd. So uh, you know, who am I? right like why are you here listening to me tonight and you know scott mentioned a little bit about what i do but just a brief overview of who i am uh i am a professional wine cheese and chocolate educator so i i do i've done thousands of events all over the country in europe all over the place um for all sorts of different topics but wine cheese and chocolate are sort of my my biggest areas of interest uh i do stuff from corporate events to food and wine festivals. I take people to Italy and France and Switzerland to eat cheese and drink wine and that sort of thing. Uh, I'm also a writer. I wrote a book uncleverly called Tasting Wine and Cheese, uh, which was published back in 2015. And actually how I got to Uh, come to join the, the IACP, the International Association of Culinary Professionals, is that they nominated my book as a finalist for the cookbook of the year, which is kind of interesting because it's not a cookbook. It's a sort of a reference guide, but that's what they chose to call it. But I was honored, humbled by that. And so I joined and started going every year. And like Scott mentioned, we met last year. And it's been nothing short of an amazing opportunity every year to sort of meet different people and see all sorts of different perspectives and learn stuff. So I'm also a writer. And then lastly, I'm a culinary journalist. So I write for Savoir Magazine, Culture Magazine, like a bunch of different stuff on a bunch of different related topics. So basically, I eat, I drink, I write, and I talk in varying proportions, as my wife Carmen will readily, uh, you know, readily confess to. Now, more importantly, or sort of more related to what I'm going to be talking about tonight, I'm also a bioanthropology nerd. Uh, my undergraduate, I graduated my, uh, magna cum laude in bioanthropology a lifetime ago, and I absolutely adore anthropological sort of topics and how culture intersects with, you know, sort of the natural world and especially when it comes to food and drink. So. You know, relative to the talk I'm going to have tonight, uh, I think my bioanthropology background is sort of what set me on the path to be really interested in this stuff. And I'm also a devoted lover of Alpine dairy culture. Uh, I've had the luxury of being able to go to a wide range of environments and visit a ton of farms and meet with cheesemakers and dairy farmers and all sorts of stuff all over Europe uh, and in some parts of the States, although never enough. And I just absolutely love sort of mountain culture. So that's what naturally draws me to it. Now, as far as what's going to happen tonight, my goals for tonight are to define what transhumans is, because for a lot of people, they they're not familiar with the word. uh, to explain why it's it's so important. And then, you know, to talk about why it matters to cheese lovers. Like, why should anybody care about transhumans? You know, what's sort of the what's the effect it may or may not have on. A cheese lover and so that's the name of the game so with that let's get started and the first thing i want to do is talk about what transhumans actually is fundamentally bottom line is it's the seasonal movement of livestock between two pastures okay the word transhumance is often misunderstood because the humans part of it makes people think that it has to do with people And while, you know, herders and stuff are involved with it, the reality is the word comes from a conflation of the Latin trans, which means across, and humus, which means ground. So when we talk about transhumans, we're talking about relocating livestock, which in the Alps is almost always cows, but it does apply to sheep, it does apply to goats, any any livestock. And when it comes to transhumans, there are two basic versions of transhumans. There's what we call montane transhumans, also known as vertical transhumans. And that's when you move herds up and down altitude. So it's a vertical shift. You go up, you come down. And that's what's found mostly actually in all Alpine regions of Europe. Basically anywhere where you have sort of stark mountain uh, terrain, montane or vertical transhumans, that up and down movement of herds occurs. Now, transhumans also occurs in places where there are very little elevations, very few elevations, and we call that horizontal transhumans, and that is usually a response to environment or climate or something like that. So, you know, over the course of a year, the water availability shifts from this area to that area, or a particular area of a a region gets inhospitable for weather, so you move your herd away from that. We call that horizontal transhumance. That happens a lot in Western Asia, although it's found all over the place, okay? Now how long has transhumans been around? Forever. It's been around forever. Um, evidence of seasonal transhumans, meaning reacting to the seasons and what we call semi-sedentary pastoralism uh, in Europe dates back to prehistoric times. I mean, we're talking way, 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 way in the back. Um, there's even some archaeological evidence that Middle Eastern cultures have been practicing pure pastoral nomadism or transhumans for even longer. So this is a very, very old practice. Basically, any place in the world that has herd animals and you know either some sort of some sort of environmental pressure or seasonality pressure practices transhumans. and so is constantly moving, Transhumans, no Jeffrey, that's a great question. Transhumans refers to sort of a movement based on some sort of, of uh, pressure, some sort of impact. It could be climatic, it could be geographic, it could be seasonal. But typically you're moving between two or three areas. And they're the same two or three areas where a nomadic existence might mean that you're rotating be- you know, between a much larger range of areas. And I wish I wish my camera went wider because I'm Italian. So my hands are flailing all over the place here. It's pretty funny. Um, So, you know, Middle Eastern cultures, there's evidence that they've been practicing this for even longer than Europe. Now, you know, is it still going on today? Absolutely. You know, what you have here is a herd in Afghanistan and central Afghanistan that moves because of water availability. So all over the globe, everywhere from Afghanistan, you know, the Pyrenees, Brazil, Europe, all of it, transhumans is still being practiced. Now, it's important, you know, the reality is it's important to note that there are big differences in culture and technology and sort of how it's executed and the the particular details of it, but the fundamental concepts are virtually identical all over the globe. And so that idea of moving your herd from A to B and back to A for whatever reason is very, very old and happens everywhere. All right. Today, I'm going to be focusing on Switzerland. Uh, I, you know, I've had the pleasure and the the good fortune of, of having seen transhumanism in in a number of, of different environments, but. I've seen it the most and been the most intimately in contact with it in Switzerland so I I chose to sort of focus on that for my talk today and I'm sp- I'm focusing specifically on the canton of Fribourg and if you're unfamiliar with Fribourg it is right there where that arrow is so it's southwest of Bern uh, it is north of the Alps it's in what they call the pre-Alps so the alpine range in Europe as in as far as it relates to switzerland is it it sort of crests through the bottom of the country and Fribourg is just northwest of that so it's in an area called the pre-alps and it's a little bit different in expectation and you know for anybody that's been to switzerland the joke is that there's basically two switzerland's there's one of them which is gigantic snow-capped peaks you know, Gstaad, you're going skiing, it's like when you think of the Matterhorn and the Alpine Ranges and all that, and then there's the more rolling hills, sort of pastoral Switzerland, and that's where Fribourg is. So when people think of of Switzerland again, you know, they're thinking of those big Alp- Alps, the huge snow peak Mountains, gigantic elevations, all that stuff. This is a different Switzerland. This is just northeast of Lake Geneva, And it's much more about rolling hills, verdant fields, greenery everywhere, impossibly blue skies. It's just gorgeous. All of this is just gorgeous. Now you'll notice in this picture that you've got the big rolling hills and Switzerland has big rolling hills. You know, Ireland, England, Great Britain, they've got rolling hills, but Switzerland has 2,500 foot rolling hills. And you may notice in this picture on on the right side of it, you're starting to get signs of that pre-alpine sort of mountain range. So you've got these elevated mountains sticking out of the ground, right? You've got sort of all that all that rock formation, but it's nowhere near as prevalent and it's nowhere near as stark as it is in other parts of Switzerland. This is not the skiing part of Switzerland. This is the cow part of Switzerland, as they say. And in Fribourg, you're looking at 126 municipalities, that's what the region is broken down to, and if you're unfamiliar with Switzerland, their concept of a state, as we think of it in the US, is called a canton, C-A-N-T-O-N, and within the freeboard canton, uh, it's got 126 municipalities, it's got over 300,000 people, which is not that much. Uh, You know, you would think, based on, you know, some US states, that it'd be in the millions, but it's not. It's actually fairly, for what it is, fairly sparsely populated. Uh, Tons and tons and tons of land resources are uh, assigned and given over to their dairy production and their agriculture. You've got 1,400 farms going, and the vast majority of them are small family owned. There are some bigger commercial producers, but they're not anywhere near in number. The vast majority of Swiss producers are small families. And then you've got 135,000 cows. There are sheep, there are goats, but cow is king in this region. Now, in addition to that, and I don't know if any, has anybody here been to Freeborg? Um, if you haven't, it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful part of Switzerland to visit, as long as you're okay with not having, you know, 9,000 foot mountains in it. But one of the other sort of highlights of Switzerland is the village of, or the medieval town of Gruyere. And it's where the cheese gets its name, Uh, it's famous for the castle, it's famous for the ramparts, Um, you know, it's a walled city up on a hill, and it was built that way intentionally forever ago, because enemies had a hard time getting to it, so it sort of persevered because of its design. It's also the home to the Tibetan Antiquities Museum, where they have 400 different artifacts ranging from the 6th century to the 18th century. one of the biggest sources of tibetan art and antiquities in all of switzerland and it's also the home of hr giger which you may or may not know the name uh if you are either a science fiction fan or a horror movie fan he's the artist that did all the design work for the alien movies back, you know started back in the late 70s so he's the one that came up with all the creepy crawly guys um his home now is actually within the city it's now a museum and it's it's an experience, it's a pretty intense experience. But in addition to all of that, of course, Gruyere is known for its cheese. And you know, the, the region, arguably Switzerland's most famous food product, Le Gruyere, A-O-P, comes from that region, it's named for the city. Now, a lot of people think that that is the cheese that they make. And it is by far in number, in in sales, in tonnage, all of it. It's by far the most popular thing they make, but it's not the only thing they make. What's interesting about this region is, and I'll talk about this in a little bit, they have severe laws. Switzerland is highly protective of their cheese culture, their cheese traditions and history. So there are very stringent laws as to what can be made where and what can't be. And for a lot of Gruyere producers, those laws mean that after they've made their daily allotment of wheels of Gruyere, they've got milk left over. Now you are certainly not going to let that go to waste. And so most of the producers, virtually all of them, take surplus milk from Gruyere production and they turn it into a cheese called Vacheron Fribourgeois. And if you're not familiar with French, Vacheron just means cow, Vache is cow, and Fribourgeois just means of or from Fribourg. So while it sounds awesome to say in Swiss French, Vacheron Fribourgeois just simply means cow milk cheese from Fribourg. From and those are the wheels that you're seeing there aging on, on pine. So you've got your Gruyere production, and then you've got your Vacheron Fribourgeois. And there are a couple of other local cheeses, but the reality is the vast majority of what's made in that region from those cows is this cheese. Now, I had the pleasure of, I've been there a number of times, and I, you know, for my talk tonight, I'm going to focus on 2017. I had the pleasure of uh, visiting a producer, an Alpine producer, and one of the big distinctions to make in Swiss cheese making, especially in Gruyere, is the difference between Alpine cheese and Valley cheese, or non-Alpine cheese. There's a definition of where the cheese was made so they classify and they identify legally where the cheese was made so i was there when i was there i get to visit with valley producers that made gruyere and then i get to visit with alpine producers who are up in the mountains and on this particular day i was 6100 feet in the air just gasping for breath i'm not i don't run much like i'm not much of a cardio guy Uh, so, you know, hiking up 2,500 feet once you can't drive anymore because the roads turn into, you know, dirt tracks, you know, you're, you're hoofing it up a mountain where the air's a bit thinner. And, you know, so I'm sort of panting for breath and I'm there to visit a producer and the time of year that I was at the end of September is right around the time that producers up in the mountains, all the Alpine dairy farms are getting ready to close for the season and walk down the mountain, basically return to their permanent year-round homes in the valleys. They all have permanent residences and families and stuff down in the valley. That's where the kids go to school, the houses, you go food shopping, all that stuff. The the, the transhumans part of this is relocating to this environment late winter to spend basically six, seven, eight months, depending on where you are and what you're doing, living up here, making cheese. You were there for the sole purpose of making cheese. And so I'm up there on this morning to, to make cheese with a cheese maker at altitude. And it is the day before the festival called Desalp is occurring. <clears throat> so when the season comes to a close, um, they escort all their herds down, right? It's time to bring all the animals and all the people down from the mountain into the valley and so we're gonna make a big party out of it. And that party's called Des Alpes, okay? So that's why I'm there, that's the time of year. I'm there to to, to take part in the festival, to experience the festival, to learn more about transhumans and to visit producers that are going to participate in it. So this is where I am. and And I took this picture as we're, you know, right behind me are the sort of the stables where the animals live. And I'm really trying not to pass out because I, I forgot that I was, you know, 48 at the time. And so I just go trucking up the mountain without a care in the world. And, you know, 6,100 feet later, I can barely breathe. So I turned around and I snapped this picture, but that's why I was there. So we go in and I meet this guy. And this guy, his name is Beat Pilaire, and he is one of 56 Alpine gruyere producers in the entire country. Now, any Gruyere producer gets what is called a registry number. Every single wheel he makes, he will take a little, their their sort of cornstarch-based labels, and he'll put it on the curd of the rind. So as the rind of the cheese develops, it's trapped in it. And on it is his identifier. So every wheel of Gruyere alpage that he ever makes will have the date in it, and it'll have the number 6054. So if you happen to be in a cheese shop and you happen to see Gruyere Alpage Page and you happen to look at the wheel and it says 6054 in it, this is the guy that made it. Now he's a second generation producer. Um, his parents and his uncle made cheese before him. His uncle's the one that taught him how to do it. And his parents still help him. And they're in their 80s. And the mom can, and I know this because I saw this, can deadlift 85 pound buckets of curd with no issue whatsoever. It's pretty remarkable. Now, in terms of him as a cheesemaker, um, he's got a decent size herd. He's got 56 Montbelliard cows. Um, some have a little bit larger, some have a little bit smaller, but they're in that 30, 40, 50 animal range. And the reason why they they sort of keep it to that lower size is simply because they have to care for the animals themselves they're the ones that have to make sure they're fed that they're housed, that if any any of the animals are sick they're dealt with like all this stuff so you can't overdo it you there's no 500 animal farms up in the mountains they just don't exist so at 56 he's you know he's comfortable he's he's got a herd size that he can deal with and they are all named every single one of them has a name and i learned this the hard way um it was it was a very humbling lesson because we're out sort of, you know, on uh, where I showed you the picture and there's animals just walking around and grazing and stuff. And I said, how do you, how can you tell them apart? And he he says to me, he says, how do you tell your kids apart? And I said, what are you talking about? Like, I know all my kids, they all have names and stuff. And he's like, well, these are my kids up in the mountains. And I go, every animal's got a name. And he goes, absolutely. And he starts just pointing out animals. He just, they, the relationship between these these dairy farmers and their animals is every bit as intimate and loving and sort of, you know, tight as you would expect with anybody and their children. And at the time, you know, it was funny, he it, he took me into the stable to meet a particular cow called Trilal. And she is 10 years old at the time. She's a little bit older now. Um, and he was super sad because this was the last season she would accompany him up the mountain. Uh, he, She was just getting too old. The legs were given out. She couldn't handle it. And so this he was super sad because 72 hours from when I was there meeting her, she was going to make the final descent from the mountain. And then she'd spend the rest of the life at the farm in the valley. So he was a little bit emotional. And it, like I almost started crying because he loved the animals so much that I was like, Oh, my God, Trilo, like, I'm going to miss you when I just met you. So, yes, I do have a picture uh, of me with the cow. (laughs) So, hang on, I'm seeing some questions here. Are the mountain pastures private property? They are, yes. So, they own land in two places. So, each farmer will go back to the same exact geographic area every season. It's not like they stake out which one's best. They all have their own. And then do you know how on average how many generations the current cheesemakers have been producing for specifically in terms of their own family lineage? That's a great question, David. Um, Well, it's a historical side, right? I would expect this. Um, I don't have a hard number for you. And part of the reason why I don't is there's a distinction in Swiss culture, particularly. There's a distinction between the Alpine producers and the village producers. And they're held to very different standards. And it's not a quality thing. It's not like the village producers can make, you know, whatever, and they just sell it. No, everybody's held to ultra high standards. In fact, Gruyere, the way the Gruyere system works is all of your production is rated and graded, and you have to hit a certain level to get paid the full amount for, you know, kilos produced and all that stuff if you wind up making lower quality cheese you get paid less and if you do that too many years in the row, you go bankrupt and you're out of the business so they they are very meticulous about quality but in terms of the family lineage um in terms of the family lineage the alpine producers tend to be more generational simply because it is a very distinct way of life it's a very distinct way of life and it's extremely difficult and I'll I'll touch on that a little bit but the valley producers are have the benefit of automation and mechanization and you know sort of all the niceties of technology that the alpine producers don't have they have to do everything by hand it's brutal it is a brutal way of existence and to you know put it in perspective um you know again you're paid by the amount of cheese you make well swiss law says the alpine producers can only make two wheels of Gruyere a day. That's it, that's all you can make. Doesn't matter how much milk you have, you're allowed two wheels, that's it. Meanwhile, down in the Valley, you can make 17 wheels, you can make 22 wheels, you know, whatever your machinery allows for, whatever you're able to produce. So the the cultural sense of pride and importance that the Alpine producers feel makes it more inclined to be generational, where the Valley stuff, It's still still very sort of you're in it for the right reasons, but there's a little bit more turnover. Um, Let me see what happens to the cheese wheels over the winter after transhuman. So the cheese wheels, after they're done in the mountains, they can no longer make alpage cheese. When they bring the animals down to the valley for the winter, they will still be milking. The animals will still produce milk, but they will take that milk, which is now way higher in fat and way smaller in quantity and either make Vacheron Free Bourgeois with it or other cheeses. Like, for example, there's a, a famous Swiss cheese called Mont Montdor that is ultra fatty. It's ridiculous. And that's made using late season milk. So they're not going to let the milk go to waste. But inherently, when the animals go down to the village, they're making a lot less milk. Even though it's higher fat, they're making a lot less milk because you're not making babies in the Alps over the winter. If you do that, those babies die so you make babies in the spring and the summer when they've got the greatest chance of living and so evolutionarily those animals produce the most milk and the highest quality milk when they can feed it to the animals that'll take the most benefit from it let's see what do the alpine producers do with the leftover milk after their two wheels claudia good question they will uh some of it is they will consume it most of the time they'll turn it into vacheron free bourgeois just because they can make that in any quantity whatever's available Uh, they can sell it, it's extra income for them. Um, And then again, in the winter, they'll make sort of other smaller cheeses that take advantage of the lower quantities of milk. And let's see, black market gruyere more than two wheels per day. That's only alpage. That's the big distinction, Jeffrey. The alpine gruyere is two wheels a day. The village gruyere, the, the valley gruyere, if you will, is a very different story it really is sort of night and day between the two and there's a reason for that and i'll get to that so while i'm there with him this is where he's finishing up the batches he's going to make because it's time for him to close up shop for the season and bring the animals down it's time for the transhumans to take place so when he's done he will close up his shop uh you know it's a small like the room that you see if you can extrapolate the room that he's in It's about three times bigger than what you can see. There's just enough room for him, a 750 liter cauldron, a fire and some stairs that lead to a room above this room where there are three cots and like a hot plate and a small refrigerator and a tiny table to eat. It is totally utilitarian. You are only there to make cheese. That's it. That's the only reason why you're there. There's no TV. There's only enough electricity to run lights at night, that kind of thing. It's a very sort of bare bones existence and everything is geared towards making cheese. That's the only thing they care about. So he's up at 3.30, he goes to bed at 10 at night because after the animals are all set, that's when he does the repair work to his roof. That's when he fixes the fence that needs mending, like all that sort of stuff. So it's a very, it's it's a calling, like you gotta really wanna do this because it's a really tough way of life so we got to him right before he was shutting down for the season now once the season's done here let me get to my slideshow here it's time for the transhumans and this tradition the whole thing about transhumans exists because greer farmers up in the in the alps the alpine farmers are required to bring their herds down to the valley by foot on foot they can't load them into trucks There's no flatbeds, there's no roller skates, there's no skateboards, there is nothing. And the reason for all of that is the Swiss in particular, every country is a little bit different, but the Swiss in particular look at Alpine cheese production as a core, core, core representative of their entire country's cultural history. It's one of the most important things they hang on to. And so the reason why they make such a stark distinction between Alpine and Valley is because the Alpine stuff is the most reflective of their history. And so they have codified the way that Gruyere was made, and everybody that does the Alpine stuff, not the Valley stuff, but the Alpine stuff, has to follow that those rules, those rules. So this guy, Beath that you just met, has to do everything exactly the way it was done When they wrote the recipe down in 1115 AD, he has to build the edifices that he lives in. The animals can only eat whatever they find up there. You're not allowed to bring food for the animals up. You have to make wheels of a certain size and a certain weight at a certain humidity, all of it. You have to, Gruyere is made with evening milk that's been um, skimmed. You leave that milk in pails out in the alpine air overnight by law. The next morning, you low you remilk the animals you take that full fat milk mix it with the skimmed milk that's been in the air overnight and then you make your wheels that's by law like all of this it's super crazy but they're doing it to to like completely protect and preserve that tradition now they are allowed electricity for lights and a coffee maker and to plug your phone in like that stuff they're allowed that and they're allowed one modern nicety. And that's a basically, think of two ores that just spin. And its job is to you submerge it in your, your milk as you're adding the rennet to make curds, as you're sort of breaking it down. They allow you to do that so you can go eat breakfast. That's it. That's the only thing you're allowed to do. Everything else is by hand. It's insane. Now, let me see here. How and when do they get the cheese down? Well, Pamela, what they do is the first... 24 hours of the cheese's life, they'll they'll take the curds out of the, the liquid, right? So you've got your solids. It goes in a mold, a cheese mold, that's the size of the wheel. It's wrapped in cheesecloth and it's pressed. So for the first day of this cheese's life, it's just pressed to get moisture out, to get weight to come out. After 24 hours, they can unwrap it from the cheesecloth and the wheel is just firm enough that you can pick it up. Now, if you were to torque it, if you were to punch it, anything like that, it'll completely fall apart, but it's just firm enough that you can manipulate it, and then it spends the next 24 hours of its life in a brine bath. So they all have giant barrels of brine, and the the wheels just float in it. After that's done, it spends the first week in a special room that's high humidity and has a high saline sort of content, if you will, and they will continue to add liquid on the rind after that they hang on to it for another month and then after that so a month and three days um the consortium down in the valley that'll do the aging for these guys to give them a fighting chance will drive up and collect the wheels and bring them down and age them in caves in the in the valley in the city so that's yeah that's how they get the cheese down because there's no way they could do it otherwise there's just no way um, they are a reenactment. Yeah, Jeffrey, they're they are modeling and executing the behavior and the traditions exactly the way they were. And that's what makes it such a phenomenal sort of calling because you can't, there's no messing with that. Like there's just no messing with that. Let's see. What happens to the cream from the evening milk? Oh, Penelope, a glorious, glorious thing happens. They they eat it. You take all the cheese fat from the, you know, the the milk fat from the night before. And if you let it sort of sit out overnight, it'll dehydrate just a little bit. And it becomes almost like heavy cream that you've whipped a little bit, but not whipped cream, like just really thick. And they eat it for breakfast and you dip bread in it and you just drink it and you put it on hook. It's one of the most delicious things I've ever eaten in my life. It's amazing. Who regulates these farmers to ascertain that they are adhering to the 1115 AD laws? There is a consortium in uh, in the Valley that tests their wheels regularly and does inspections regularly. They are super, super, super tight on that. They have very tight controls over that. So there's a whole system of checking up on stuff, recertification, surprise visits, all that stuff. They do not mess around with it in any way, shape or form. Now, for most of these people, that means a 12 hour walk. To you know walk 56 cows, you know, 15 miles into town. that's a 10 to 12 hour walk for them. So what do you do? How do you make somebody in modern times or, or just over history? How do you get people to want to live like this? Like you'll get some that do it for the honor of it, but how do you, my God, what a way to live? Um, you know a beautiful response to that are the festivals that they throw for these families and so Swiss culture has evolved to make these people rock stars and that festival that I went to was in a small small village called Charme like three thousand people live there maybe in regular times but on this festival day, no cars are allowed everything shuts down it's just a carnival there's just music traditional music everywhere and food and drink and rodeos and just all this stuff all this fun and every half an hour by schedule another family descends from the alps they're all timed and they all walk through the center of town and when that happens the bands all start playing nobody does anything but head to the sidelines and you'd think the rolling stones were rolling through the center of town it's amazing how celebrated these these animals are and these people are. And it's how, you know, one of the ways, one of the sort of the cultural ways that they make sure this keeps going, um, is to just celebrate it. Just make it absolutely celebration. And they're the stars of the show. These cheesemakers are the stars of the show. Um yeah, no, Penelope, that cream is what and what they will do. Yeah, it's in the it's in the ballpark of Devonshire clotted cream. But if you can imagine fattier, like it's just it's it's like drinking, heavy. it's amazing, and the way that they typically enjoy it is they will get a little shallow bowl, pour some of it in it, so it's just like a just a pool of this stuff, put meringue in it and fresh strawberry, uh, fresh raspberries, and eat it, and it's it's incredible, it's so incredible. Um, Jeffrey, the cows don't care if they cared. There is absolutely no evidence. They don't, they just walk. They just do their thing. It's pretty amazing. It's uh it's an amazing experience. Absolutely. It's an absolutely amazing experience. And the beauty of it is anybody can go. You can go. Just go. Just show up at the village and party like we did. You know, I'm 10 feet from these cows. There, there's, you know, there's like you can sort of see in the far left picture to the left. Of the left cow you can see like a little white piece of tape that's about it for crowd control it's like just somebody put up like a little piece of plastic rope saying you know please don't bother the cows and nobody does because it's super important to them so this is how they make sure transhumans perseveres now what's amazing is everybody's decked out in traditional garb like really old clothes it's pretty amazing and all the cows are heavily decked out and you know, what's what's noteworthy about this is everything that, that is on that cow has a significance. So the flowers that you're seeing are significant to that animal, which is why each of the cows has different headdresses. You can just make out that the cow on the right, the, the main cow has sort of, so on, on her forehead, you see the three flowers, and then just above it, you can sort of make out some wood. That whole thing is an inverted stool. The flowers on the top are packed into a stool, and any cow that has a, a stool inverted means they're one of the most important milking cows of the herd. So it's a way of distinguishing them. What also distinguishes them are those unmistakably gigantic cow bells around their necks. They serve a massively important role in, in Swiss cheese culture. They are uh, basically herd management. They've been used for thousands of years. They're called tricles, And they've been used for thousands of years as a way to not only be able to hear where your herd is, because they could be miles away. And you know these bells allow you to hear where your herd is, but it also trains the herd. So the younger animals, the betas, all get to know the bell sound of the alpha And they'll follow that sound. So it's a self sort of self-regulating, you know, herd management. And there are a couple of different kinds of bells. And actually, as I would mentioned, I was talking to Scott and Kathy yesterday, and I mentioned that I have cowbells. So it was like, oh, bring the cowbells. So I have my cowbells. Um, I have two different ones that I've gotten. Um, These are two of my cowbells. The guy on my right, this fella here is a French cowbell it comes from the Savoie and it has sort of that traditional bell shape now this particular shape and this particular size bell would have been worn by a younger animal so you know both of these bells are for cows that if they were people would be like 25 year olds they're smaller so their timbre isn't as as sonorous as big as huge and they would be part of the herd this is a French cowbell this is a swiss cowbell and i had this made at the festival that you're seeing the pictures of now and it's a handmade bell there's only six bell producers in the entire country that make these and they're phenomenally expensive i mean this to have this made was like i think 450 bucks um and i wound up right when i found out there was only six guys doing it i wound up writing a story in savoir magazine about this so if you google my last name and cowbells, you'll meet the guy that made me this, and it's like one of my prized possessions. Now you may notice that the strap has no adornments. It's just a straight strap. While the cows on there have all sorts of patterns and stuff on it, the decorations that you see on those cow strap on the bell straps are purely representative of the families. It's an opportunity for them to put their family crest on it. Um, you know, it's their chance for them to put meaningful dates on it. Like the, cause the same cow will wear the same bell. So often they'll put the family crest and it's sort of embroidered into it. They'll put the dates of the births of the, their children, like all that sort of stuff. There's no requirement on them. They just put them on there as a way to sort of tie it into their family. Um, Jeffrey, I am sorry to say I cannot ring the bell. Uh, simply because these are made like the one I showed you is meant to be heard for up to a three mile radius. It is deafening how loud it is. It's unbelievable how loud this thing is. In fact, we visit this guy at his little shop downtown. I get this bell, my son gets a smaller one like the other one you saw. We go back to our, our we're staying in a like a 12th century chalet in the mountains somewhere, it's an Airbnb. And my son and I are so happy to have these bells that when we get out of the rental car, we start ringing them because we're in wide open space. And what we didn't realize is over the hill behind us, over the rolling hill behind us, there's 75 animals. I mean, this is farmland. So we start ringing the bell. And when we stop for a second, we hear a gigantic commotion because that herd is now moving to where they hear the sound. And on top of that, so we hear 75 animals making their way over to where we are. And on top of that, a little bit more faint because it's farther in the distance, we hear amazing cursing. We hear all the swear words of the farmers who are chasing the herd, trying to figure out who's leading the herd away from their land. So, you know, we panicked, I admit it, in a moment of panic, we ran, we ran in the house, and we were like, don't nobody, go outside, don't anybody say anything, be quiet. But, you know, these these bells make a very significant, um, you know, contribution to the culture of it, and it's, it, uh, Claudia, I got to admit, we we got inside, and after about a minute of panic, because once the bells cease, cows are not like deep thinkers, so once the sound was gone, they just stopped. And the farmers rang more bells on the other side and drew the herd back. Um, so it wasn't funny for about two or three minutes. It was sheer panic, because I had no idea what to do. It never even occurred to me, but wow, we laughed so hard when it was gone. So, you know, I've got it wrapped in paper towels and stuff because again, it is deafening how loud that bell is. So I'm sorry, Jeffrey. I, I can do this. I can like touch it. like. Oh my God, that's so loud, (laughs) that's so loud. Now, interestingly, that has a lower pitch than the little guy, which is, it's got a higher pitch because a smaller animal would wear it. And that's how you can tell the herds. Because if a smaller animal kind of gets away from the herd, the higher pitch will travel farther. And so it's easier to find the animal and it's easier for them to carry. All right, so let's move on here. You know, these festivals, not only is there food and drink and rock stars and Rolling Stones in the form of cows, there are also all sorts of cultural elements. Um, You know, these are classic Alporns. If you've ever seen a Ricola commercial, these are them. It's one of the most peaceful sounds I've ever heard in my life. And if you go on, you know, wait, Jeffrey, the bell didn't sound over Zoom. I clipped the microphone. Crazy, well, so if you know, whenever you have them in a Google Alphorns, and so you can hear what these sound like, they are one of the most soothing sounds I've ever heard. And again, they're built to be heard for miles. They were originally a system of communication, so you could—it was almost like an audible Morse code, so you could communicate over great distances. Now it's just beautiful to listen to. So there are all these cultural aspects. That um, you know, that go on during these festivals to reinforce the beauty of it, to make everybody love what's happening and want to keep going. So, why is transhuman so important? Why does it matter? Why do we care? Um, what's super important about it, and and this is this is what how I explain it to people. The, you know, um, yes, Penelope, I will, I will, I will touch on that at some point. Yes, I will do that. Um Transhumans is super important to Swiss Alpine cultures because it lets them grow. It lets their population grow. As a species, you wanna make more of you, right? The more of you there are, the more likely you're gonna survive. Excuse me, I need to sip here.
2: Mm,
1: Very parched, sorry. Um, You know, the more of you there are, the more likely you're gonna survive. So that means increasing your population. Well, when you increase your population, you gotta feed these people. And so you need more crops and you need more animals. That's one of the biggest reasons you stop being nomadic so you can grow. And once you plant roots somewhere, you start growing. Well, if you're in like wide open spaces and you have thousands of miles around you, if you're in, you know, out in Iowa, you know, whatever, and you just have all the room in the world, it's not a problem you can keep growing out as much as you want. But if you live in mountainous regions, your area of of availability is limited, sometimes severely so. So you look for ways to increase crop production, increase livestock, like more food, more resource, more labor means more resources to let your population grow. And so what they figured out thousands of years ago, all over the world is, hey, There are grasses up on that mountain or hill or whatever. Why don't we take the animals up there when it's nice? Let them eat that, which gives the stuff in the valley a chance to recuperate. And then when that's done seasonally, we'll bring the animals down and that will have a chance to recuperate. It's a very elegant, it's a brilliant system for increasing the amount of resources you can create. And that lets your your, your population grow. You know, you're doubling or even trebling the amount of of space that you have. So it's a really good strategy for staying in one place and making the most out of the, relatively speaking, limited resources that you have. So, you know, there's also a benefit for, you know, again, this is getting kind of nerdy, but it also provides a mutual benefit between the crops and the animals. Because, you know, these areas typically have some sort of ecological challenge whether it's harsh weather tons of snow you know bad winds whatever it is these environmental pressures can limit crop production by moving the animals each of the areas that you're leaving has a chance to regenerate it has a chance to bounce back it has a chance to get to full strength again and that's very very good for for your you know for your crop system so it's it really kind of does all sorts of good things now why should cheese lovers care? right? Like why, as a cheese lover, do I care about transhumans? Well, the anthropology nerd in me, that should be pretty self-evident. But the reason why cheese lovers should care is that that act of moving animals from place to place means they're consuming different resources, which means their milk is going to have a different characteristic to it, a different flavor to it. And so, you know, the dairy farmers are making these cheeses and as a consumer you can benefit from that transhumance if you know what you're looking for and so you know it's all in the name and i'm going to use gruyere as an example but this also applies to conte in france uh emmental in northern switzerland or Tetemois, or you know appenzella like all these winter alpine cheeses uh it's all in the name so If you notice, I, you know, this is less than subtle, I guess. I went kind of crazy with the cut and paste here, the copy and paste, but you may notice that all those arrows point to a single word, right? And of course, that word is alpage. And you may notice that if we go back to the first cheese, there's no alpage distinction. One of the requirements for le gruyere is if you make alpage, you have to use that alpage designation. You are formally known as Le Gruyère d'Alpage AOP, which is Switzerland's system of, of certification. If you are a valley producer, you may not use the Alpage word. And so this wheel, you can tell simply by the labeling, it is a valley produced cheese, not an Alpine produced cheese, okay? And let's see, Jeffrey, i found that rural areas in Europe are dealing with invasive plants, just like we are except many of their North Americans invasive. Okay. Yeah. And, and, you know, I wonder how that impacts the, the milk of the animals that are eating those invasive plants, if they are, um, you know, it'd be interesting to see sort of how that impacts the, lo- the long-term flavor profile of the cheese. So alpine versions of, alpage versions of alpine cheeses have a different flavor and a different personality thanks to terroir. And if you're unfamiliar with the word, it's simply a French concept that means sense of place. It's the belief that every single variable of an environment impacts the the output, the final product. And so being up in the Alps, eating those grasses instead of valley grasses, eating flowers up there, all of it, will have an impact on the cheese. The big thing to to keep in mind, you know, sort of the big thing to keep in mind is that you want to buy an authentic version of this stuff. And if you notice at the top of the wheel uh, of the wedge, there's that black, red and white label that says AOP. That's a designation in Switzerland only that's their version of it. It's called the AOP um, that guarantees authenticity of production. It guarantees method of production, origin, all of it. Every country in Europe has a version. The French have their AOC system, the Swiss have AOP, the Italians have DOCG, and it all translates to the same thing, Appellation of, or, of Origin Protected. So AOP stands for Appellation d'Origine Protégée, and the DOCG is Denominazione Origine Controllée. Like, it all means the same thing. It's a guarantee by that country that what you buy is authentic. So whenever you go and buy a piece of gruyere, whether it's Alpage or not, and the vast majority of what you're going to find is not Alpage. Of all the Gruyere, of all the Gruyere made in Switzerland, only 7% of it makes it to the US. And of that, only 2% of it is Alpage. Because again, there's 56 producers making two wheels a day, not a lot of cheese. So make sure whether you're buying the Alpage or the Valley or whatever, it has that AOP because that's what's going to guarantee you quality. Okay? So with that, now I've I've got some questions here. Uh, Let me see if I can answer those. Um, At some point, can I please speak about the different appearances of the cows and the resulting cheese? Do you, uh, Penelope, do you mean within Switzerland or just in general? I want to make sure that I answer your question correctly. Let me see. I'm going to move my chat box here off my ancillary screen so I can be staring at the screen the whole time. And uh, Penelope, while I'm waiting for you to, to let me know about that, if it's okay, um, I'm gonna ask if anybody else has questions. And again, I'm happy to interact directly. We can do it through chat, whatever you prefer. Okay, you but to, to answer your I'm question wondering. in the general yeah. sense and sort of tying it into what Jeff Jeffrey mentioned. Um, yeah, yeah different hard. family cows look different. Now within the each area, right? All these pictures that you're seeing are from different parts of Europe. So all the photography you saw was not only Fribourg, Switzerland. For example, the picture that you're looking at right now is from the Alto Adige in Italy. So those are the the beginnings of the Dolomites in the background. So that breed of cow that you see there is of that region, but that is not a Montbelliard cow. The black and white spotted cows that you saw and the tan cows, all the cows with the bells up in the Swiss pictures, Those were all Montbelliards. Those animals come in basically two flavors, and you saw them both, tan and white, black and white. Now, within the family of cows, they all have sort of the same kind of general personality. So all Montbelliard milk kind of acts the same, but that's going to be different than Holstein milk, Jersey milk, like all that. So different species of cows have different attributes to their milk some might be fattier, some might be more acidic, some might be less acidic. There's all sorts of variations. And so within these regions for AOP protected cheeses, for any of those protected cheeses in any country, um, they have to follow the the guidelines on cows. So in alpage production, you may use Montbelliard cows and that's about it. So you get to pick your color, but that's the breed that you have to work with. So there are a lot of those sort of uh, regulations and controls. And hopefully that answers your question,
2: Jeffrey. I talk a
1: lot, don't I? This is why my wife makes me teach. I'm not kidding. I've been doing this for I don't know, coming up on 20 years and probably a, a dozen years ago. At one point, my wife, one night, cause I would do this to her every single night over dinner. And at one point she just went, just shut up. Like, just go do this to somebody else. And that's when I started teaching. Correct. So all the the Swiss cows that you saw, Penelope, they're Montbelliard. You just saw the tan-coated ones and the black and white ones. And there are all sorts of different regions. Like, for example, uh, up in Spain, you know, if you're going to make Manchego, you have to use La Mancha sheep. That's the only breed you're allowed to use. So there are all sorts of different regulations in different places. And again, it's the spirit of that is to maintain and protect continuity, tradition, history, so it doesn't spiral out of control and people are doing weird stuff. <clears throat> so I should put that over there.
2: I have a feeling you may have covered all the questions because you covered
1: it <laughs> as you were talking. People, no, people are afraid to ask because that means they'll start talking again. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. Oh, no, I don't think anybody's afraid to ask you. You're just so knowledgeable. You've
0: shared so much. Thank you. Uh, no. Scott,
2: did you have something you wanted to add?
0: Um, no, because uh, it, it, it's, uh, he left no holes in his cheese talk. What can I say? But uh, um, no, this this was wonderful. And uh, usually I, I, I say like, okay, and now we'll go to the chat questions. But like you say, I think Adam answered everything and um if your wife ever tells you to shut up again you're always welcome to come to us
1: <laughs> well this is my outlet this is my outlet all right i've seen a few more questions in here let me see uh can you tell the difference between cheeses made by different makers a 1000% um it is so stark when you're there right like it's hard if i go to the store now and you just give me a piece of gruyere i can't tell you who the producer was i can do it for exactly one because his stuff His name is Vincent Gapanay, Vincent Gapanay. And his is the single best cheese I've ever eaten in my life. And I'd like to think I can still get it. I can still pick up on it. But when you're there and you're at the festival and there are 40 stalls of 40 families with their Gruyères, and you go from one to the other to the other, you can absolutely, you see how they're all related. They're all Gruyère, but you can absolutely pick up on the differences. It's amazing because it's all in the diet of the animal, the age of the animal, how much sunlight they got, was it wet grass they were eating, was it silage or fermented hay, like you can tell all sorts of stuff. Now, so Maria, can I give you the price per kilo of the Gruyere? This is fascinating. In the US, and if it's okay, just because we're in the US, I'm gonna talk about pounds, if that's all right. Um, in the US, I, I, for years, I worked for a cheese shop called Formaggio Kitchen, and I'll put it in the chat box here, and they are a world-renowned cheese shop. They just happen to be in Cambridge, in Boston, where I am, and that's where I sort of got my start. Um, the owners, they just sold to a woman that's been working there forever, but the former owners, um, as of last month, were knighted by France for their work in, in French cheese. like. The husband, it's a husband and wife owner. And the husband used to carry Julia Child down the stairs to see the cheese caves because the stairs are so steep and it's like this old craggy building that she would have broken her neck. So it's really significant stuff. And that's where I learned about it. And they carry, both right now, they have the Alpage version and the Valley version, the reserve. And in the States, the reserve version's about 24, $25 a pound and the Alpage version's about 29, which is criminal. They should be getting so much more, like the, the families that produce it, I don't mean from Agio, but the families that produce it should be getting so much more than that. But what's hilarious is over there, it is beyond cheap, beyond cheap, like eight or nine Swiss francs, which is about 11 US dollars per kilo. So that works out to be like 450 a pound. So whenever I go over there, I bring home 40, 50, 60 pounds of cheese because it's the best stuff I'm ever gonna have at a 10th of the cost of being here. It's really kind of amazing how that
0: works out. Um, Oh, oh, Adam, uh, when you bring the cheese home, does it maintain its flavor uh, through through, through the journey?
1: so i have them vacuum seal it which Uh is not perfect for the cheese but it's the best way to deal with it Uh okay um it's the best way to deal with it and it, it lasts long enough i mean i bring it home with the express intent of using it in my classes giving it to friends cooking with it eating it like i'm i'm not hanging on to it i go through it pretty quickly um you know i was in spain a few months ago and i brought home 60 pounds of cheese and it took me two weeks to go through it so let's see here i've got more questions here uh more than one breed so uh penelope you had asked a little while ago more than one breed of cow all making official grier cheese nope montbelliard um is the festival katie asked me is the festival occurring may 7th this year no it takes place well so there are two festivals there's a smaller one when everybody goes up the mountain the one if you're going to go see it um is takes place typically at the end of september into early october and if you want i will put in here actually uh ways to get a hold of me because i'm happy to share with you all the research i did when i went um, and it's so worth it so let me see here my the way is to get a hold of me is my website is just eatdrinklearn.com. That's who I am. My email is uncleverlyadam at eatrinklearn.com. Or if you're a fan of sort of the social media, like instant message thing, my Instagram is uncleverlyeatdrinklearn. So, you know, happy to help out in any way I can for that. I can tell you that this year I'm doing a Piedmont tour. um, and, And Katie, you had asked about this as well. Um, I'm doing a Piedmont wine tour that will include the cheese festival in Bra, which is in Piedmont, and it's an insane cheese show. It's the village of Bra, the entire center of the village turns into an international cheese show, and it's just called cheese. Like It's not even in Italian. They just call it cheese in English. And it only takes place every two years and this is the first one that's happened since covid so everybody is dying to go to this so i'll be in that region from september 13th to 20th doing a food tour um, of vineyards and you know cooking experiences and cheese and all that stuff and it'll include that show at the conclusion of that it ends with everybody going back to milan on the 20th and everybody goes home except this guy who will be heading northeast into the Dolomites because their transhumans festival takes place on the 23rd. So September 23rd in the Dolomites, sort of north of Bolzano, um, they'll have their festival. And if anybody wants to go, happy to have you join me. Um, If you want information about it, whatever, email me. You can get to me through Scott or Kathy, like I'm, I'm around and I'm happy to share anything um let's see interesting discussions at u.s customs very when you roll in i'm the only person i've ever met steve that's been stopped on the way out of the country because my suitcase is all towels and socks like i use it to wrap stuff to bring it home and the last time i came home from switzerland which was last march so i don't know, 10 months ago uh, i was there for another festival in northwestern switzerland um i had so much cheese that when you put your suitcase on the weighing you know the scale i was a tenth of a pound like three ounces away from having to pay a fine because it was like 70 kilos of cheese it was insane i had to lift the bag off the belt for the woman because she couldn't lift my <laughs> it's great oh it's so funny okay so let's see it appears different family cows look different yes yeah i mean there's some you know some variations because often you'll have like the lineage of the same cow jeffrey so you'll get the kids of the kids of the kids kind of thing um claudia thank you i appreciate that that's very kind um yeah i could talk about this all night whether cheese wine chocolate and charcuterie i can talk about forever ad nauseum um price per kilo okay i did that thank you jeffrey i appreciate that are there wines that best pair with alpine cheeses absolutely jane and i'm gonna type some stuff in the chat box and a lot of these you may not be familiar with. Um, uh, let's see here. Basically, any Alpine wine, which I'm going to give you some examples of. And, uh, and this is awesome with it. And I'm I'm basically thinking of stuff that I drink with Alpine cheese. Um, So for white wine, um, there's a French grape called Jacquère. The wine is called Chignon because it comes from that, you know, it comes from that village. Um, There's a Swiss grape called Chasselat, Italian or French Pinot Blanc, legit Pinot Grigio, I misspelled it there. It's Pinot Grigio, not Pinot Grigiois. As far as reds, it is you know you would do great with any of these you know these are sort of red grapes that are found in alpine regions as well as i love syava um and again these are small and yes claudia that's exactly where the slow movement begins that's part of the reason why they have the cheese show there um you know the last grouping that i just did are red wines but essentially any red any white wine that's got a little body and some heft to it so you could do a chardonnay you could do a riesling or a Gewürztraminer, like any of those it'll work great because it's got the the weight it's got the broad shoulders to handle it the red wines that they drink with alpine cheeses are very counterintuitive Um, they tend to be lighter bodied very structured a little bit of tannic grip fruity like really approachable but they tend to be a little bit more nimble than people expect. And if you think about it, it makes sense. Um, You know, if you're up on an Alp somewhere and you got 50 animals to take care of, you don't want to be drinking, you know, giant heavy reds because it's going to knock you out, right? You're not going to be fixing anything or taking care of anything when you do that. So lighter, brighter, fresher, higher acidity. And yes, Bra is known for its raw meat preparations. Absolutely. And I'm excited about that. I'm already starting to line up producers. Uh, slow movement. Yep. Bras and Piedmont pesto is Ligurian, right? And Ligurian pesto is so good. So, so good. All right. That's cool that I bring all my cheese back to the U.S. Absolutely. That's half the reason why I do this, Maria, is just sharing the stuff with people. It's so awesome. Uh, Jeffrey asked, how long do they spend in the mountains for winter? They don't spend the winter in the mountains. It's too uh, inhospitable. The animals couldn't survive it. So what they'll do is they will go up at the first frost break. They'll sort of make their way up. And then once the Alps are sort of cleared off, they're up there until typically late autumn, early winter. But what's interesting is they don't determine when they're coming home from the mountain. They don't determine that by the weather or the season. What they determine it by is how much of the grass has been eaten. When the fields get to a certain length, when they've eaten the grass down to a certain length, then they pull the animals. Cause if you go any farther than that, and you do that for a couple of years, you kill all of that grass and it doesn't grow back. And then you're in real trouble. So they don't spend the time in the mountains. Let me see Claudia. Um, I am putting information up. We just released the info on the Piedmont tour, uh, Claudia. So I'm happy to, if it's okay, if I may ask you to just um, give me away, like email me or something so I can contact you directly. I'm happy to share it. Um, I will tell you, you know, I think we're friends enough now, everybody, that I can tell you this, this is unofficial. We're working on it now, but I hope to have it resolved in the next two weeks. I'm gonna be doing a Parisian chocolate tour oh. at the end of October. And the reason why it's then uh, is because there's a chocolate festival in Paris. Oh. There's a like a chocolate trade show in Paris called Uncleverly, the Salon du Chocolat that takes place at the end of October. And that's going to be bedlam. It's going to be amazing. Uh, where to buy alpage in the US? There aren't many places at all, Pen- uh, Penelope. Um, I will put that cheese shop that I worked at because I know they have some because I just bought some there. If you go to formaggokitchen.com, it'll be listed there. If for some reason it's not on the website, it just means it's, it. that happens from time to time simply because they have so little of it and they're still kind of a mom and pop shop that there isn't somebody that's constantly updating inventory on the site every day. So if you don't see it on the website, give them a call and they'll be happy to help. And the, you know they can ship it easy enough. Um, and they get really good stuff, like really good stuff. So I trust all their stuff. And also, if you're a fan of that style of cheese, they also carry French Comte, which is from the Jura. And it's sort of Gruyere's French counterpart, but at this time of year, they carry a couple versions of it um, that are only available at this time of year because there's so little of it made. And that's the Grand Cru and the Extra Grand Cru. Uh, I am happy to send a link, Terry, once I have it. Again, we we're finalizing the details, so we haven't rendered it live. Um, you know, maybe if it's okay, maybe there's a way that. Scott or Kathy, if I could trouble you to send me the emails of anybody that's interested, or you can reach out to me directly and I'll make sure that you get that information. It's going to be just bonkers, Terry. That's A friend of mine is like a legit chocolate maven and she agreed to go on the trip with me. So she's got all these contacts in Paris. It's going to be just awesome. So much chocolate. It's going to be great. Pamela, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Pat. I appreciate it. Toria, thank you. I appreciate your time, guys. Uh, let me see. I'm seeing any more questions here. I want to make sure I hit them all. Um, great. Okay, I think I got them all. Are there any other questions that I can answer? I'm I'm fine. I'm in no rush. I've got a little bit of wine left, so we're cool until that runs out. Um, so, um
2: what I can do? I mean, do you? I could put your contact information on the web notice.
1: Absolutely. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm happy so to. So then, people know anybody. where to
2: find that.
1: Thank you, Elin. Thank you, Penelope. I really appreciate it. And again, I'm happy to to share you know any of the information about the the trips I've taken. If you want to do it, um, you know the the Dizel Festival I'll be in in September. That you're welcome to join. Like any of this stuff. Like happy to share any way I can. So yeah, Kathy, if you don't mind, I'm more than happy to to share that info.
2: All right, sip of courage. Yeah. yeah, and and for some of the information that you put in the chat, I'll put over there as well the cheeses and the wines that you suggested.
1: Absolutely, and so, and, and again, if people have questions, more than happy to uh, you know to to uh, share any of that information. I'm going to stop the share here. There we go. All right, now I can do that. Beautiful. So yeah, more than happy to share any information that I can help at all. This is what I do. do you know where Dad is I'm I'm gonna see if I can trick Kathy and Scott to let me do an in person one at some point because it gives me an excuse to get to Chicago.
0: <laughs> yeah, that should be fun. You know what? Um, we we haven't done a live presentation since COVID hit, but we're hoping to get back to it. So uh, we'd like to put you on our on our on our wait list for when sure. we do live programs. Absolutely, Jared. Thank you. I appreciate it.
1: Beautiful. And and a, a super big thanks to Kathy for the help and Scott for the opportunity. I'm I'm so glad you happened to stand next to me at the at the conference. It was a pleasure talking to you then and it's a pleasure working with you now.
0: And you know what I told you then that at, at there were so many incredible people at the conference. I had about yeah. 15 names <laughs> and I thought we only have 12 slots and then I met you and I think I said we're filled right now but we'd like to keep you on a wait list but some of those names fell through and i called you immediately so thank you <laughs> my
1: pleasure absolutely my pleasure
0: guys thank you so much for your time tonight i really i'm sorry we
1: ran late oh no no this is fine and so chatty, um, Kathy, With this you were
2: you, you not beating any records we had somebody go and i think he's here peter regas two and a half
1: hours Oh, my God. See, I can't do that unless I'm giving people cheap and water. If but I'm feeding your wife, and watering you, then I can do that. We gave
2: your wife an hour and a half of relief. <laughs>
1: right. right. Exactly. Exactly.
2: In fact, when Scott came back, he was like, "Cal, I'm thinking I should do two programs a month. And I said, no that's too much wear and tear because i also do my own programs so it's like way way but i said just spread it out over the year and it's working out fine yeah let's figure out how we can arrange for you to come to chicago at some point
1: how fun i it would be it would be a pleasure it would be a pleasure but again everybody thank you so much for your time i really appreciate it now i'm all exercised my wife's evening will be quiet it's great i'll be on the couch and just quiet it's great so, and if anybody, again, once again, if anybody needs any information about how to go visit this stuff, where to find the cheese, the, something I said, whatever, recipes, just let me know. Happy to help. And, and again, Kat, thank you for could, sharing the info.
0: Could you repeat your uh, the your website? Uh, oh, sure,
1: yeah. I'll put it in the chat God, box. I'm
2: gonna put it into the um
1: So I'm, you know, the, I so. do business as what I call myself is eat, drink, learn. Is sort of my LLC name. So my website is just eatdrinklearn The email to get a hold of me is just adam at eatdrinklearn And then my all my social media stuff is you know Facebook and and Instagram and all that stuff is eatdrinklearn. So I'm very easy to get a hold of. And again, Piedmont's ready to go. Piedmont's on sale now. Um, Paris will hopefully be online by the end of the first week in February. And, and in both cases, for anybody that's interested in tours, um, we're going to cap it at like sixteen to twenty people tops. Like we don't want we don't want big. It's, it's no fun if there's too many people. So, you know, I want a chance to be able to talk to everybody and 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 have fun with it. So.
0: Well, oh, thank thank you again. You've you've melted our hearts with your cheese talk. Thank hey, you. cows. <laughs> Be nice to cows; they're adorable. <laughs>
1: but and now, guys, now I know
2: transhumanism is not something questionable.
1: Exactly, it's a wonderful, beautiful <laughs> thing to witness, and it's a really important part of their culture. So.
2: I think we'll Kathy, thank you
1: very much, Scott. Thank, thank you. you so much again for the opportunity. I hope you guys have a great night and we'll talk soon, I hope.
0: That'll be great. Take care. Right.
1: Good night, everybody.